build. Um, with change um, or money, I think you can even put a check in there. Um, if I remember right, is Matt in here? Yes, you can. Okay, good. Somebody else knows. Um, so grab a bottle if you didn't. Um, don't grab a bottle during the service. Grab a bottle after the service, but not right now. Right now, stand up with me, and we're going to, uh, to begin our service together. You came and broke them down You broke them down There were chains around us By your grace we are no longer bound No longer bound You called me out of the grave You called me into the light You called my name and then my heart came alive Your love is greater Your love is strong
there's a love for us How vast beyond all measure That he should give his only son To make a wretch his treasure Which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory Behold the man upon the cross My sin upon his shoulders Ashamed I hear my mocking voice Call out among the scoffers It was my sin that held him there Until it was accomplished His dying breath for the life that we have because of you, because of your son, because of the life that he gave for us. Father, we pray this morning that you would draw us near. You would draw us close to you, that you would teach us, make us more like your son. We pray in his name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. And if you're one of our kiddos, K through five, you can be dismissed to Sunshine Kids Club. If you're one of our guests, please feel free to go with your kiddo and get them checked in. And then you can come back and join us. I'm going to go join them.
today we're going to wrap up our series on standing up to the adversary. We've been in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, as we've been looking at putting on and taking up the full armor of God. And as we close it out today, uh, we want to be reminded, of course, that we are to take up and put on the full armor of God, that we might stand firm in the strength of the Lord against the schemes of the devil. So we don't stand in our own strength, we stand in the strength of the Lord. And what I want to do today is to frame this series and, and close out this review by framing this message uh, with a verse from uh, James, the letter that James wrote to the church in the first century. And it's from chapter 4, and it is verse 8. It's just the first half of that verse. But I think it captures for us this idea of standing firm in the strength of the Lord. And this is what he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What a beautiful thing. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The context of verse 8 in chapter 4 of James is one of spiritual warfare. In fact, I'm going to read the first seven verses for you. And I think that you will recognize the conflict that, that comes from the unholy trinity, the, the, the war that we wage with the flesh and with the world system orchestrated by Satan and with Satan himself, you'll see that. You'll pick up on that as I read the first seven verses. And you might even be able to identify in those first seven verses some of the conflict, some of the spiritual warfare that might be going on in your own life. So I'm going to read James 4, verses 1 through 7. And this is what James says. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have. So you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He summarizes that paragraph with that line I read at the start from verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. In, this, in the context of spiritual warfare, James is summarizing how to stand firm in the strength of the Lord. This morning, we're going to review the armor of God in light of the context of the whole book of Ephesians. We want to look at 
the whole book of Ephesians and the context here so that we can answer the question, why did God put in the armor of God in Ephesians 6 instead of Romans 6? Or make a sixth chapter in Colossians or somewhere else. Why did he put it here? And what we're going to do is, the first thing we're going to do is just take a, a quick review, kind of a water skiing approach, not a deep scuba diving approach to the whole book. And we'll just look at some of the highlights of this book in terms of the wealth and the walk of the believer, the riches we possess in Christ and the way that he wants us to flesh those out, both individually and corporately as a church family. And then secondly, we want to look at the schemes of, of Satan because he wants to rob us of our blessings and ruin our walk, obviously. And then just a brief review of the armor of God because that's why he's put it here. He shows us the beauty of what we possess, where God wants us to go with it, and the fact that Satan's going to attack us. And then he gives us the armor of God to protect us. So let's start with this quick review. The wealth and walk of the followers of Jesus. Chapters 1 to 6, we draw near to God when we appropriate by faith the spiritual blessings that he has given to us, the riches that we possess in Christ Jesus. We draw near to God when we walk in loving obedience with Jesus Christ. He's called us to follow him. He's called us to obey him. And so when we respond to his word, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, he continues to change us to make us more like Jesus Christ. And that's really exciting. So let's, let's take a look at what God has given us here. Because we've got to be aware of our wealth and our calling to walk worthy. And we must appropriate it by faith. The culture, the context of this book is, of course, written to the city of Ephesus, a very cosmopolitan city. It'd be a city like Tokyo or New York City or San Francisco or Houston today with all the ethnic influences from around the Mediterranean basin, part of the Roman Empire, the major highway went through there. So all kinds of cultures passed through there as people were selling things that they had made in various countries. And so... You had a lot of influence come through here. And not only that, but you had the Temple of Diana or the Temple of Artemis. This was uh, a Greek god that was believed to have come and fallen out of the sky and landed right there in Ephesus. So they built a temple to her. And this temple garnered a lot of economic advantage for the area. They, are, they made a lot of money off of it. And it was uh, masquerading as a religious uh, observance. It was essentially a cult of uh, sexual abhorrence. And it was also an area that was a tourist destination. So this was the pride of Ephesus. It was not anything that a follower of Jesus Christ would want to participate in. In fact, it was abhorrent to Paul to have to talk to them about perhaps their former life. It's quite possible that as unbelievers before they came to Christ, that they had participated in that temple and some of the temple rites there. And so Paul is addressing them. And you can imagine uh, 
the continual pull and temptation. You can imagine the guilt and the shame uh, associated with that and all the confusion with the idea that this is the pride of our city. And we've got to move away from it because we found Jesus Christ. That's the cultural context into which Paul is writing. And so in chapters 1 through 3, he makes it very clear what is our wealth in Jesus Christ. What are our spiritual riches in Christ Jesus? And that's what we want to look at first. We possess riches in Christ because of our union with him. In other words, if you placed your faith in Christ, then you possess every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. You don't have to go out and get this. You don't have to pray for it. You just have to take it by faith and act on it. Here's a quick review. One, chapter one, verse one. Paul says, I'm writing to the saints in Ephesus, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. He is writing to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Sins forgiven, they receive the free gift of eternal life, and the Holy Spirit has entered them. Jesus entered their life through the Holy Spirit to lead them. This is what he says in 1.1. To the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, this is just one of those glorious passages of, of Scripture. If you've got a highlighter, just highlight all 14, 13 verses here. Just go to work on it and, and reread it every day this week because it starts off this way in, in 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I mean, that alone is phenomenal. It reminds us of 2 Peter 1, where Peter writes, and he, and he makes sure that all the believers know that by the divine power of Jesus Christ, he has given you everything pertaining to life and godliness. We can follow him because he has given us everything that we need to follow him, so we can follow him confidently. Sure, we get confused at times, and we have doubts at times, but we don't have to come up with what we got to do. He has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. It's so exciting. And that passage is all about glorifying God. The first section talks about the Father planning his selection. He chose you. He adopted you. It's all about the son sacrificing as a sinless substitute. He redeemed you and forgave you of your sins and lavishes his grace upon you. It's all about the spirit sealing you. Your salvation is eternally secure. And he makes it very clear by saying the gospel which you believed, you are now sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's just phenomenal. Each of those three sections ends with a similar phrase. This is for the glory of God. This is for the praise of his glory. It is really exciting to, to, to read this, to reread this, to soak it in. And, and one of the reasons it's so important, one of the reasons, one of the things that's made such a big difference in my life about is that this really outlines our identity in Christ for us. You know, our identity, uh, a lot of psychologists would kind of uh, locate it on three things, uh, strength, security, and significance. And, and we find all of those here. We find strength. We find that we are adequate in God 
So we can stand firm in the Lord against the schemes of the devil because he has given us all that we need. And we're going to see all about his power throughout Ephesians. We are significant because he has given us an eternal purpose. And we see in chapter 2, verse 10, that we are his masterpiece created for the good works that he's prepared beforehand. We are secure because you cannot meditate on that passage and think that you are not loved. In fact, what you'll come to realize is that you're loved unconditionally. You didn't do anything to earn it, and there's nothing you can do to lose it. When you have that kind of confident awareness, then you and I can face the world with our identity firmly planted in Jesus Christ, which allows us to stand firm in the Lord. Okay. The next section is 1, 15 to 23, and I'm going to combine that with 3, 14 to 19. These are the two prayers of Paul in the first section, in the wealth section, our riches in Christ Jesus. And in each one, he prays that we would experience Jesus Christ by knowing him completely and fully. So it's not just an intellectual knowledge, but it's a knowledge that is experiential. It's a knowledge where we begin to know him and we experience his love and his strength and his power. In fact, in both of those passages, he prays that we would know the power of God in our lives. He says it's the resurrection power in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 and 20. Let me read those for you. I pray so that you will know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of his strength, of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. This is resurrection power. This is what we believe in by faith so that our faith is not meaningless, so that we are not to be pitied, so that we are not lost and condemned to hell. In chapter 3, verses 14 to 19, he prays for power as well. He prays that we would experience the power of the Holy Spirit. He prays that we would know Christ and we would know his love, the full height, breadth, length, and width of it. He wants us to know it fully and completely. Because when you know that, then you are free. You are free from the attacks of Satan. You are free from the temptations of this world. Because you are secure, you are strong, you are significant. And you're acting out of the power of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, another incredible section. Just highlight all 10 verses of this as well. Meditate on these the following week, because you got 3 through 14 this week. 2, 1 to 10. This is where we are reminded that we are trophies of God's grace. Verses 1 to 3. You remember we were dead in trespasses and sin, deserving of the wrath of God. That's how we're born. That's our nature. And then that incredible passage. We sang the song a couple of weeks ago. Chris had it for us that really emphasizes these words from chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, But God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. We read 2, 1 to 10, and we are reminded not only of our original state, but we are reminded that God intervened and that 
we are made alive in Christ Jesus, and it's all because of his love, a self-giving love. It has nothing to do with what he saw in me or what he saw in you, just that he loved us. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That's the plan of redemption. And then in chapter 2, 11 through 3, 13, uh, a long section where we are reminded that everyone who is united to Christ is united to one another, united to everybody else who's united to Christ. This is how Paul puts it in chapter 3, verse 6. He says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, what was going on was that conflict between Jew and Gentile. There was tremendous animosity there. And the Jews viewed themselves, rightfully so, as God's chosen people. But they felt like only they had the right to know God. And it kind of hung over, it kind of carried over to the original believers in the church. And so Paul is letting them know that not only is Jesus your peace with God, he is peace with God for the Gentiles, all who place their faith in him, are no longer enemies of God, but they are reconciled to God by faith. And then he says, and he is your peace, you too our fellow members. You have a corporate relationship with one another. And it is our calling to become part of his family without bias. All who are united to Jesus Christ are united to everyone else who is united to Jesus Christ by the Spirit. And so we are to grow in Christ individually. We are to grow in Christ corporately or as a church family. We go on in, the, in that beautiful doxology in, in verses 20 and 21, and, and this is so typical of Paul. It's typical of him to, to start off with our riches in Christ and then get to our, our relationships, start off with our wealth and get to our walk. He does that in several of his books, Colossians and Romans come to mind. And one of the other things that's typical of him is that after he gives all this doctrine, he comes out with this doxology. And I think it's because he has been meditating on this. He has been thinking about this. He is so joyful about pushing this out to the believers in the city of Ephesus. And he just breaks out into praise. He did that in Romans 11. All those incredible chapters about where God's plan of redemption brings us and the sanctification and the combining of Jew and Gentile. And then he just breaks out in praise in 33 through 36. Quoting from Isaiah 40. Well, he does that again here in, in 3.20 and 21. And this is what he says. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, the power that he prayed for, that would be resident in them. To be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Chapters 1 through 3. The wealth of the believer in Jesus Christ ends with that doxology, and rightfully so, because there's great joy that bubbles up when we think about what God has done on our behalf and what he has given us, what we possess, 
and that we can live out of that now by faith. Then he moves to chapters 4 through 6, and we call that our walk. Uh, you know, the walk that's used in, in, in Paul's letter here, I think it's eight times in verses 4 through 6, used throughout the New Testament, has to do with our lifestyle, everything about us, our attitude, our actions, how we carry ourselves. Philip Wells was telling me one time that as a, a physical therapist, he can tell a lot about a person as he watches them walk. He can tell what's going on in their lives, where they need to work on, what's different. Well, Paul is saying, here's the command that God has for you. You are to walk worthy of your calling in Christ Jesus. Your conduct is to harmonize with your calling, with all of your blessings. And he says that in verse 1 of chapter 4, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And then we get the whole point of it in verse 13. It's not only an individual calling, it's a church family calling. It's a body of Christ universal calling. In verse 13, he says, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I think I might use a different version on the screen. Christ-likeness is the goal that we are moving toward. And so if we are going to choose to obey Jesus Christ, to live in loving obedience, loving response to what he's called us to do, then we are going to bring our conduct into line with our calling. We're going to begin to represent him. The Holy Spirit is going to change us from the inside so that our character begins to represent his character. Our thinking begins to think like Jesus Christ. Our doing begins to do like Jesus Christ. That's where Paul has us, and that's why he can say we keep moving in this direction until we reach the full measure of fullness of Christ. He wants us to experience everything that Christ has for us. Now, we won't be like Christ until he returns and changes us and gives us a glorified body. But until then, Paul wants to make sure that we trust him, that we get to know him more completely so that we can experience his fullness. And then in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, 9, and, and 4, 17 through 6, 9, we've got an entire section on our spiritual walk. And I think one of the key verses in there is 518. And I would say that, that everything here in, in 417 through 69 has to do with living under the power and control of the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled by the Spirit. That we submit to His authority. That we agree to do what He calls us to do. That we walk with him. And this is how it's broken down. I think in 4, 1 to 16, we walk in unity. Paul hammers that because, again, we've been united with everyone else who is united to Christ. So he wants us to flesh that out. There shouldn't be gossip and criticism and, and jealousy and envy. No, there's a building up of one another that takes place. We're to walk in unity. We're to walk in holiness. Verses 17 to 32, drop the vices that are mentioned and, and add the virtues on a daily basis. We're to walk in love, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Be imitators of God. Love one another 
even as God in Jesus Christ has loved you. We're to walk in the light. Chapter 5, verses 7 to 14. We're to pursue Jesus' agenda, not Satan's agenda. And then we're to walk in wisdom. Chapter 5, verse 15 through 6, 9. And he has all kinds of relationships there. You know, the passage on husband and wife. And then there's a passage on children, obey your parents, and fathers, nurture your children, don't anger them. And then slaves and masters, and, and everything about all of these relationships are that they are healthy when we are living according to what God has called us to live by as a new man in Jesus Christ, a new woman in Jesus Christ. We have healthy relationships when we honor one another, when we live in mutual submission to Jesus Christ, when there is unconditional love and a laying down of one's life for another, when there is respect, when there is nurturing, when God's word is at the center of it, when we are filled with the spirit. All of these come into play in these relationships and we are called to walk worthy of Christ in the relationships, and we can do that when we appropriate our riches in Christ Jesus. So our wealth and our walk are presented, but they're not presented as trophies to be mounted on the wall or to be set on a shelf. Our wealth represents our riches in Christ, and we need to appropriate them. We need to understand what God has given us, and Paul does that joyfully and rich, rich, richly. He does it in a magnanimous way. And then we're to understand our walk, that this is how Jesus would have that apply in our lives, that this is how it would play out as we seek to be responsible in our corporate relationships that we have. And since our wealth and our walk is centered on Jesus Christ, Satan's going to attack at every opportunity. I'm not saying you can hide behind the skirts of Jesus and, and know that you're completely oblivious to Satan's attacks. No, what we're saying is we stand firm in the strength of our Lord. We look to Jesus. We trust him. We rely on him. We obey him. And he gives us strength to face whatever attacks come from Satan. We've been called to be holy and blameless in our call. We're to walk worthy of Christ. Satan is the accuser. He's a liar. He's an imitator. He's a perverter, a destroyer. We see all those titles and descriptions in, in Scripture, a lion and a dragon. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He cannot rob us of our inheritance. He cannot take away our spiritual blessings in Jesus Christ. But he can disrupt our relationship, and he's happy to do that so that we are not trusting Jesus, so that we are not looking to Jesus, so that we are not following Jesus and looking to him for guidance. Satan does not want us to draw near to God. So let's take a look at some of the common schemes of Satan. Satan schemes to rob our wealth and to ruin our walk. Satan is a defeated foe. Jesus conquered him at the cross. We're told that in Hebrews. We're told in John 16 that he was judged. He is a defeated foe, but for whatever reason, God has allowed him to be the ruler of this world and the God of this age. One more thing. 
that I don't fully grasp and fully understand other than I can see how God uses Satan to work in my life sometimes through testings, through trials, through temptations. See if I will draw closer to him. Satan does not fight fair and he wants us to give up. His attacks are relentless. We must remember that he does not have the same characteristics that God does. We mentioned this early on, that he is a creature, that he is potent and strong, but he is not omnipotent like God is. He is present in one place at a time, and he does have legions of demons that are also present. He's not omniscient like God. He has thousands of years of experience with the human race, and so he knows what we're like, and he knows what you're like individually through studying you. But he is just a creature, a defeated one. From our perspective, it seems crazy that Satan is allowed to attack believers. But we see that throughout Scripture. We see it in the book of Job, that, that, that Satan is not allowed to do anything other than what God permits. And what God allows is ultimately for his glory and for our good. The part I can't understand. But that's what we see throughout Scripture. Satan's been defeated at the cross, but allowed to rule this world system. And a defeated, as a defeated foe, he strikes out to kill, kill, steal, kill, and destroy. I read an interesting story this week of Jeremy Sutcliffe, a 40-year-old in Corpus Christi a couple of years ago, that uh, can tell us about the attacks of a defeated foe. Uh, he and his wife were preparing for a Memorial Day picnic, and... Um, she was gardening, she was cleaning out the garden a little bit, and she came across a four-foot uh, western diamondback rattlesnake. And so she screamed. Jeremy came over there with his shovel and decapitated it, cut off the head, and uh, went back and cleaned up some things, and then came back and picked up the head to throw it out, the head that was decapitated. And uh, the snake viciously attacked and sunk his fangs deep into two fingers of Jeremy and uh, a decapitated snake. Now, experts say that they can do that for about an hour uh, because of their design as reptiles. But Jeremy uh, didn't react real well. He began to lose consciousness. He began to tell his wife and daughter, I love you. In case I die, I want you to know I love you. He was life flighted. And he, with three occasions, the doctor said, you know, you need to prepare for his death. His organs were failing. He was on a ventilator. He had 26 doses of anti-venom, which is staggering considering that most that you ever get typically is four. And yet the Lord brought him out of it. He has some continuing physical issues. But he knows what it's like to be attacked by a defeated foe. And I think as gruesome and tragic and horrible as that story is, thank God he is alive, that the attacks of Satan are far worse. But we often develop a mentality that we're cool. We're okay. We don't have to worry about Satan. We don't have to worry about his attacks. And the truth is, he is always coming after us when we want to pursue Jesus Christ, when we want to follow him. And so if our eyes are not on Christ, then we are open to the attacks of Satan. 
that can disrupt this relationship that we have with Jesus and, and not allow us to enjoy his strength and his power because we're focused on so many other things around us. I want to look at some common schemes that I think are true of Satan throughout Scripture. A defeated foe, but one who continues to attack. Paul informed us of this spiritual battle that goes on in verses 10 through 13. We read that back at the start. Let me read it again. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and have done everything to stand firm. Five common schemes that we see throughout Scripture of Satan. Most of them, I think, are in relationship to the wealth and to the walk that we have been presented with in Ephesians. That's why I think we've been given the armor of God here because of Satan's relentless attacks. Some of them also come from other scripture. The first thing I would say is this, that he will tempt us to change our priorities. He will tempt us to change our priorities from glorifying God with our lives to satisfying self. And that's easy to drift into. It's, it's easy just to look out for ourselves and, and seek a life of comfort and safety. Even when Christ is calling us out, to make a stand for him. Paul wrote this letter to the saints who are at Ephesus. We looked at that earlier. To believers who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And as soon as you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you have a target on your back. Uh, Satan is going to attack. He's going to wage war with you. And we are commanded to walk worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus. He wants to disrupt that. We saw in Ezekiel 28, in the first passage that we looked at, that Satan had, as a cherub, as the most beautiful angel, unrighteousness was found in him. He sinned. He chose to rebel. In Isaiah 14, we saw that his desire was to be God, to replace God on the throne. Satan wants us to change our priorities to be independent of God. And, and so in order to recite rebellion against God, he does the same thing he did in the garden with Adam and Eve. He, he, he wants us to doubt God's word, that this is truth. And he wants us to doubt God's goodness, that God ultimately seeks our best. He's going to use those methods on us at all times to try and change our priorities. The second thing that we see is that he will tempt us to live spiritually bankrupt lives. Our identity is in Christ. And his desire is to disrupt, to keep us ignorant of what we possess in Christ Jesus, to keep us from accessing it, to appropriating it as we walk with Jesus and experiencing his power in our lives. He is a deceiver. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. 
He is a deceiver. He is one who would have us believe that it is all up to us, that we don't possess anything in Christ, that we have no strength in him. He would choose to deceive us, that we don't possess everything we need for life and godliness. He would choose to deceive us, that we have to find security and strength and significance in the world around us through money and power, through sex and pleasures, through acting independent of God. Satan wants us to be spiritually bankrupt and to not appropriate our spiritual blessings or be aware of what we possess in Christ Jesus. The third one is he will seek to render us powerless. He wants to render us powerless so that we are left in our own strength, so we're not standing in the strength of the Lord because he's not afraid of us, but he is afraid of us connected to Jesus Christ. And so one of the things he brings into our lives is the sin of prayerlessness. It makes us weak in, in praying so that unlike Paul, we are not praying that we would experience the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. We are not praying that we would fully experience the love of Jesus Christ. Even when we know it intellectually, we don't often pray that we would continue to grow in Christ, that we become more like him and experience more of his character in us. Satan would choose to distract us. 2 Corinthians 11.3 is a passage again that just shows how simple it is. I'm afraid that Paul wrote, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of a devotion to Christ. Just distracted. That's all he wants to do. He just wants to disrupt our relationships so that we begin to drift into just thinking about ourselves and our own strength and trying to fight our way out of our circumstances. Fourthly, he accuses us of not being worthy of God. He's a liar and the father of lies. Jesus said that in John 8, 44. He said, whenever Satan speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Of course, when we lie, we are acting more like Satan than like Jesus. But Satan wants to come to us, that whole section on 2, 1 to 10, and he wants us to totally forget about that. And so he wants to cause confusion and doubt and discouragement and tell us you are not worthy of God. In fact, you never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's going to be an ongoing attack. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you can stand firm in his strength. Satan is a liar. The fifth one, he will tempt us to change our perspective. Tempt us to change our perspective from eternal to the here and now. He masquerades as an angel of light, we're told. He seeks to destroy followers of Jesus Christ by getting them to quit following Jesus, to quit appropriating their riches in Christ, to quit looking to eternity and start looking to the here and now, to look out around us and be overwhelmed and not turn to Jesus Christ. That's what he wants us to do, change our perspective from what is eternal to what is earthly. He wants to take us from the values of the kingdom to our own earthly values, 
the things, the competition that we face on a daily basis. He doesn't want us to allow the Holy Spirit to control our lives. We mind God's word for what is true and right. This is what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He masquerades with half-truths or misquoting scripture as he did with Jesus in the wilderness. He wants to convince us that being good is good enough. That if we try hard, that we will be what Jesus wants. He wants us to center on ourselves and work it out on our own instead of trusting Jesus Christ and looking to his word for truth by which we can live by. For truth of who Jesus is so that we can worship him and experience his might and his power and get to know him both intellectually and experientially. Satan wants to disrupt our thinking from an eternal perspective to an earthly perspective. Satan schemes in ways that are meant to disrupt our wealth in Christ and our walk with Christ. He can't remove the blessings, but he can disrupt our relationship. And I think that is why Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, put in the armor of God here in Ephesians chapter 6. Because we're aware of all that Jesus has given us our riches in Christ Jesus, and we're aware of how he has called us to walk, to behave, the attitudes to have. And because of Satan's relentless attacks, he has given us the armor of God to stand firm in the strength of the Lord against Satan. So let's look at verses 14 to 18. Draw near to God through the full armor of God. Draw near to God through the full armor of God. We've got to draw near to God if we want to stand firm in his strength. We can't face the temptation of Satan on our own strength. We can't face doubt and discouragement and depression and despair on our own. We've got to turn to Jesus and to face it with him. So here's a quick review of the armor of God that we looked at over the last few weeks. The belt of truth. Satan is a liar and would have us believe his lies and easy deceptions. We have the truth of the gospel in which we can stand for our salvation and our sanctification. We can find God's truth in his word and go back to it any time. We have the belt of truth, and that's what we read in verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. And then he moves on to having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the second piece of armor. Our positional righteousness in Christ Jesus leads to practical righteousness. Because we've been declared righteous in Christ, now we can make choices that are righteous. We can pursue practical holiness. We can live in obedience to God. Sin no longer has dominion over us unless we choose to sin. And then we're removing the breastplate of righteousness. The fourth one, and the third one, the shoes of the gospel of peace. Putting on the shoes of the gospel give us a firm foundation, and they give us assurance that we have confidence that we are saved. And, and when we looked at salvation that week, we looked at it in terms of our conversion, that, that hell is canceled and heaven is guaranteed. We looked at it in terms of our sanctification and the fact that we have this promise of Jesus Christ, that the work he began in us, 
he will bring to completion. And then salvation in terms of glorification, that one day we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him. First John 3. We have the shield of faith, or the, the gospel of peace. And that gives us peace with God. We've been reconciled even though we were enemies with God. And it gives us the peace of God in a practical sense. We can trust God with all of our worries, all of our anxieties, all of our circumstances. So that Jesus Christ will guard our hearts and our minds, our thoughts and emotions with a peace that surpasses all understanding. We even looked at it in terms of proclaiming peace to those that don't yet know Jesus as Savior, that they might be reconciled to him and come to peace with God. The shield of the faith is the fourth piece of armor in the full armor of God. And we looked at that as the practical everyday faith in God, our walk with him, our desire to commune with him, to be aware of his word, to, to have some form of Bible intake and to pray, to talk to him, to express our need of him and our trust of him against the attacks of Satan. And we realize that the shield of faith blocks many of the attacks of Satan. We put our trust in the presence of God, the promises of God and the providence of God. We talked that week about how we practice the core experiences of the New Testament believer seen in Acts 2 as we live out our practical everyday faith. The helmet of salvation is the fifth piece, and we take up the helmet. And it does refer to the confidence and the assurance we have with the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Satan, again, wants us to doubt who we are wants us to doubt that we are in Christ Jesus, wants us to doubt that we possess salvation, much less our riches in Christ Jesus. We put on the helmet of salvation and we are assured with great confidence that we are his and that he has sealed us until the day of redemption. The final piece, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. We can face temptation just like Jesus did. We can say it is written. God has given us specific words in Scripture for specific attacks. We can rely on the Holy Spirit as we open ourselves up to him to give us God's word to face the attacks of Satan. Those are the six pieces of the full armor of God, and, and none of those pieces are available as a result of our own hard work. They are all available by trusting Jesus Christ and accepting his truth and his grace and depending upon him to come through for us. Many people visualize putting on the armor of God, some in the morning before they head out for the day through prayer, some when they face temptation right then. I encourage you to do that, to get in the habit of putting on the full armor of God, of develop, developing that mentality of standing firm in the strength of the Lord that he offers for us. We finished last week by looking at the, the prayer that Paul requests at the end. It's not officially a, a piece of the armor, but we said that it energizes us. It, it puts us in touch with the power of the Holy Spirit. We had five guidelines for prayer, for standing firm against Satan's attacks 
And I'm going to encourage you to pray, not by repeating the five, but just repeating a, a verse of an old gospel song from my childhood. And it's a, a, a song written by Joseph Scriven. Perhaps you remember it. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. What a beautiful verse. Prayer is necessary for drawing near to God. We could say the same thing about facing the attacks of Satan. That we are often defeated, discouraged, and despairing because we don't take everything to God in prayer because we don't put on the full armor of God. The Christian life is only as strong as our dependence upon the Lord Jesus. And that's why I think James 4, 8 captures so beautifully by way of review, this passage in the book of Ephesians for us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If you want to face the attacks of Satan, the schemes of the devil with strength, then draw near to God. Develop a lifestyle of Bible intake and prayer and obedience that draws near to God. That's a phenomenal promise, and he will draw near to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for acknowledging that life is difficult. It is hard to stand upright in a fallen world, and we understand better because of what you've laid out for us in Ephesians 6. We thank you for the riches you have given us that we possess in you. We thank you for the freedom that we have to walk closely with you. And we ask for grace to make that happen. We ask for grace in our lives to turn to you, to put on the full armor of God in the face of attack with Satan. We thank you for the privilege of knowing you and experiencing you. And we want to experience you more fully in our lives. And so we ask for grace to look to you more often and more intently. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. <clears throat> It's time. 
Have a great week.